Well, thank you for the invitation, Zubia. And uh, it really is a pleasure to be here today. Uh, my talk today is uh, drawn from a book that I hope to complete in about a year and a half. Uh, it's tentatively titled uh, Democracy of the Minor, the book I mean, uh, and it explores how Gandhi and Ambedkar think the figures of the neighbor and the friend. Uh, the book will hopefully be the last occasion I write at length on Gandhi. My future projects will be more working with the writings of Ambedkar on the one hand and the mid-20th century intellectual world of Gujarat on the other hand. But uh, one never knows. Gandhi has a way of pulling you back in when you think you're done with him. Uh, so anyway, uh, to jump to the talk itself, uh, you know, uh, when, when, as, as I suspect many of you in this room are, uh, are intellectual historians, and uh, as you know, when describing Satyagraha, which, uh, it's, which is his neologism for the spectrum of activities that includes civil disobedience, Gandhi draws interchangeably on the figures of the friend and the neighbor, right? Uh, so one of the things that he does is in 1920, for example, during the Khilafat movement uh, in support of uh, the Ottoman Caliphate, he writes, the Musliman is my neighbor, Padoshi. He is in distress. His grievance is legitimate and it is my bounden duty to help him secure redress by every legitimate means in my power, even to the extent of losing my life and property. And this is the way I can win uh, permanent friendship. Kaimni Maitri with Muslims, unquote. And sometime after the failure of the Khilafat agitation, he still writes, uh, and I quote again, after we, that is to say Hindus and Muslims, have sufficiently broken one another's heads, we shall recognize that vengeance was uh, not the law. The Gujarati word is not law, but Kimat, which would be perhaps uh, maybe closer to, I mean, it's certainly not law. So we're translating it is not easy. Um, but not justice, uh, maybe one could say value, not justice, but surrender, tyag, you know, uh, and nothing but surrender is a law of friendship. Unquote. Now, as you also know, Gandhi is hardly alone in this emphasis on the neighbor and the friend. His most astute uh, uh, critic, right, uh, Dr. Babayat Ambedkar, centers his posthumously published Buddha and his Dharma around the theme of Maitri, friendship. Uh, interestingly, neither Gandhi nor Ambedkar think they're doing something new in doing all of this. Right? Gandhi assumes he's only reiterating the Christian injunction to love your neighbor as yourself and the analogous traditions he espies in Hinduism. Similarly, Ambedkar never dwells on how the figure of the friend is transformed in his invocations of the Buddha. Still, even if they do not recognize it, uh, something really radical happens in their writings. They write at a time when a modern commandment, so to speak, has displaced uh, the, the, the biblical commandment. This new commandment is in many ways exemplified in the categorical imperative. As we know, the injunction to treat humanity, whether in oneself or another, as an end. This is a commandment that is not only philosophical, if Kant found himself sympathetic to the French Revolution, despite his antipathy to revolutions, this surely had at least something to do with him discerning in that event at least a murmur of this commandment, of his own commandment. right? But in different ways, Gandhi and Ambedkar are both critical of this new commandment. They question it by affirming instead the old commandments around the neighbor and the friend. 
But in their very questioning, they borrow from the new commandment a new a key element, right? The injunction to equality. So even as they think they are affirming the old Christian, Hindu, or Buddhist injunction, they actually inaugurate a new politics, a politics that's centered around what I've elsewhere described as an equality of the minor, and what could also be described as democratic neighborliness or political friendship, right? Now, as you know, uh, the minor is not a new figure in critical theory, of course. Uh, it embodies the practices, uh, actions, or even ways of being that are inassimilable to the norms of the majority, as I've written elsewhere again. Uh, and the norms of the majority are at work in every form of sovereignty, even in sovereign forms of democracy, such as Republican or liberal democracy. So an equality of the minor strives for a liberty, equality, and togetherness outside sovereignty. Such a democracy without sovereignty is not some future utopia. It is at work already in what we sometimes call the commons as distinct from the public, in the socialities we create outside institutional spaces and sometimes in opposition to them, for example, in the Shaheen Bagh protest that took place in India around three or so years back. Uh, I would even say that this new neighborliness is what is most new and most democratic in our present, though it is also what is most fragile in our present. Right? Now, you know, you may ask, uh, and I wonder about this sometimes myself, uh, at a time when sovereign forms of democracy are under threat from both populist authoritarianism and neoliberalism, you know, say the dominance of Hindutva today, why should we concern ourselves with democracy without sovereignty? To which I would say that while we absolutely must defend sovereign forms of democracy, as Gandhi and Ambedkar both did, much, maybe everything, depends on how we do so. Both populist authoritarianism and neoliberalism are in different ways threats internally generated by sovereign forms of democracy. Uh, and these threats are more likely to be generated when the sovereign forms of democracy become our telos, become what we cannot think beyond, right? So even if our immediate goal is to defend sovereign forms of democracy, we must do so from a perspective that uh, cherishes democracy without sovereignty as both our horizon and a possibility in our present. Right? So, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, the book I'm writing is about how they conceptualize and enact this democratic neighborliness of political friendship. And today's talk is drawn from the first chapter which offers a conceptual prehistory of the modern neighbor, which explores the path by which the neighbor as a concept became available for Gandhi to think with. In what follows, I shall be addressing two sets of questions, two clusters of questions. Right? Uh, the first is uh, a question that, uh, first cluster is, around the injunction that Gandhi encounters, right? Uh, the injunction uh, to love the neighbor. So the questions are, what makes injunction one-to-one -one of neighborliness? How 
is a neighbor transformed by the injunction to love. How does Gandhi take up this injunction? So that's the first cluster of questions. Right? Uh, the second cluster that I would like to take up is about the modern remaking of the neighbor. Uh, what is the new self that emerges with the consolidation of the uh, of modern commandments such as the categorical imperative? How does the new self obscure the older figure of the neighbor? How does this obscuring lead to the emergence of a new neighborliness centered around equality? Right. Uh, so these are the two sets of questions I would like to take up. Uh, so let's start out then with the first cluster and the first question in the first cluster, which is what makes a relationship into one of neighborliness? Right? And an initial clue is provided by a Gujarati phrase in Hind Swaraj that in 1909 Gandhi translates as neighbor, uh, or people residing nearby. So neighbors are those who are nearby. This resonates also with the uh, etymology of the English word neighbor, right? Near or nigh, and Jibur or inhabitant in Old English, right? But the question is near how? Yeah. And here Gandhi's insistence, who? The word on the, on the itself provides a clue. In our everyday parlance, we tend to reserve the term who for entities that have not just sentience, but interiority, right? Relatedly, we resort to the word what, the term what, for entities that do not have interiority, right? Or, or at least we don't refer to the interiority when we are talking of what, right? We also, of course, tend to hierarchize entities by this criterion, and we place the who above the what, right? With the figure of the neighbor, this way of distinction between who and what, in terms of a criterion internal to them, deposited in them, comes undone. Right? Somebody or something is a neighbor, not because of their interiority or lack thereof, but because of their relationship to my interiority. Right? Because they are related to who I am. Yeah? Neighborliness, in other words, has to do with experiencing another entity in my interiority. So a thing cannot be my neighbor if it is merely an object for me, nor for that matter can a fellow citizen be my neighbor if I do not experience them in my interiority. But that thing can become a neighbor if I develop a relationship with it in my interiority, right? As Gandhi arguably did, with the many pencil stubs to which he became attached, right? And for one of which he made an associate notoriously or famously walk back many miles during the Noakali March, right? Uh, and so I suppose what I'm stressing is that the figure of the neighbor is constituted by an emphasis on the who, yeah? And again, you can see that there's nothing necessarily, uh, you know, maybe one of the frightening things about uh, uh, about 9-11 for Americans was precisely that they discovered suddenly that their neighbors whom they did not know that they had, right? Uh, put differently, what I'm trying to say is 
within the problematic of the neighbor, when I'm speaking the language of the neighbor, I cannot ask, what is my neighbor? I cannot even ask, what is the criterion of the neighbor? Right? The neighbor is not, or at least not primarily, a what. The neighbor can become a what only when viewed from outside the problematic of neighborliness. Within the problematic of neighborliness, the term who is crucial. Who is my, your, our neighbor? And one could say this of other, other terms too, related terms. Think of the friend and the guest, you know. All three figures are the friend, guest, and neighbor are inseparable uh, from a emphasis on the who, right? Now, of course, I don't need to say this, but uh, just to stress, right? Uh, there is nothing at all democratic or empowering or nonviolent about relationships of who. Some of the most violent, massive violence has been directed against neighbors, against those identified as who in a monstrous way, right? Whether it's Jews under Nazism, Muslims and Dalits in India today, and we could have countless other horrifying examples, yeah? Indeed, uh, part of the allure of modern citizenship for many of the most marginalized is that it enables an exit from the violence of unequal relationships of who. Right? And it seems to affirm instead an equality of what. And those who affirm the equality of the minor uh, often recognize the importance of the equality of what. This is why they do not seek so much to reject or sublate the equality of what, so much as to step back from it, right? So as to pursue a more democratic politics still. Uh, this relationship with the equality of what we can get back to in the Q&A if you want, right? So, so much for the first question that I wanted to ask to raise, which is the, uh, the, the question of who is the neighbor, right? Uh, and the answer, the question is also the answer as you saw, right? Uh, let me move on to the second question, to the second aspect of the first cluster of questions and turn to intertwined issues of how the injunction to love transforms the figure of the neighbor and how Gandhi encounters this injunction. Now, this is a group of South Asians. I suspect all of you read the autobiography and you remember, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Gandhi likely reads the Bible for the first time while a student in England in the early 1890s. And of that first reading of the Bible, he writes that the Old Testament, quote unquote, sent me to sleep, right? Uh, and he goes on. But the New Testament produced a different impression, yeah? Uh, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which went straight to my heart. Right? And in later years, he often invokes the New Testament when talking of the neighbor, specifically referring to the injunction, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, the biblical injunctions on the neighbor have been the subject of copious commentaries and analyses, but maybe approaching them from the prism of the who and what may still shed some fresh light on them. If Gandhi was put to sleep by the Old Testament, 
then this might well be because of the way the neighbor is construed there. In the Old Testament version that Gandhi likely had at hand, the famous passage from Leviticus enjoins love for the neighbor, but does so by constricting that figure. Right? Neighbors are no longer every relationship of who, right? For example, uh, you know, but one sort of who. They are thus contrasted to other relations of who, for example, enemies and strangers. There are injunctions against vexing strangers. There is one law for the stranger and another for the native or home bomb. And as for enemies, hating them and wreaking destruction on them is quite acceptable, even desirable. Right? By contrast, neighbors are those who, even if not intimate, are of one's own people. Right? Now, Derrida notes somewhere, I think in one of his interviews, uh, that the who and the what are, quote-unquote, terribly reversible. The Levitical injunction works this reversibility in both directions. Sometimes all that seems to matter is who the other is. The neighbor is an affine or intimate. The enemy or stranger is potentially monstrous, and so on. At other time, it accentuates reversibility in the direction of what? Separating neighbor, enemies, stranger from each other in terms of what they are, huh? rather than only who they are. Determining the who in terms of the what, so to speak. So that's the Old Testament for you. Now, if, on the other hand, Gandhi is shaken to his heart by the New Testament, then this was likely because it upturns the who-what hierarchy and intimates instead an, an economy. For example, the Sermon on the Mount, which Gandhi, as you saw, was so influenced by, uh, you know, challenges the Old Testament's economic criterion, right? For sorting neighbor from enemy and stranger and for subordinating the who to the what. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, well, I, I, maybe I should give at least one or two brief quotes from the New Testament, right? Uh, and I quote, you've heard it, it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good that, good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The relation with the neighbor is now cast as aneconomic, right? Uh, I can give more quotes, but I don't think I need to. We can come back to these more later if you want. What I want to stress for now is that when neighborliness leans into this an economy, two aspects are particularly noteworthy. For a start, the neighbor intimates a mysticism, right? Drawing primarily on Gandhi, I think we can distinguish between the theological and the mystical. A comportment is theological when it ascribes sovereignty to the sacred. This sovereign sacrality could be around a transcendental being, such as God, who may offer a sovereign love to all his devotees or to all. It could also be centered around an immanent criterion, as with the various humanisms that provide that, that surround our world today. Right? By contrast, the neighbor of the Pauline formulation. And I realized I didn't read out the Pauline formulation, but I suppose all of you know it. Uh, by contrast, the neighbor of the Pauline formulation has no evident relationship uh, to a transcendent God. You know, 
there is actually a repressed relationship, contrary to what Jacob Tubbs assumes, but I can come back to that later. In other words, the neighbor is now sacred without being evidently sovereign. Yeah? This sacrality without sovereignty is the crux of mystical traditions, whose chief inability, whose chief, whose chief, chief characteristic is the inability to conceive of the sacred as sovereign. Yeah? Second, and by implication, this Pauline neighbor intimates a quasi-universalism rather than a universalism. Right? Usually the universal is inclusive because of its infinite sovereignty. It is such a sovereignty that we ascribe to God in transcendent traditions or to the human in immanent traditions. The all-inclusiveness of the Pauline neighbor by contrast, right? because it does not mediate its relationship with the neighbor through God, cannot and does not belong to this order of infinitude. Rather, uh, Pauline love, even if it is infinite, is by a finite being and for finite beings. Right? So it must proceed by experiencing each and every other in one's interiority. Right? How to enact this quasi-universalism? This is a challenge, I would say the challenge that Pauline Love wrestles with, right? Now, so that's the second point that I'd like to make. Uh, to move on now to the third issue, which is, uh, you know, that is a related issue, which is how Gandhi's comes to the, Gandhi's attraction to the quasi-universalism, quasi-universal neighborliness that he gleans from the New Testament is possibly responsible for at least some of his anxiety that he voices in his letters to Srimad Rajchandra around 1894. The anxiety about whether the religious resources of Hindu traditions are capacious enough to address his questions of right conduct. Right? Now, partially at Rajchandra's uh, advice, he takes to reading the Gita carefully. Uh, around this time, he also finds his way to the Ram Charitmanas, right? And uh, in these traditions, he comes to discern a quasi-universality very similar to that which he had encountered in the New Testament. Uh, now, as you know, the text that he often turns to, uh, you know, is, uh, is the Gita, right? And uh, the Gita begins by, uh, begins with Arjuna, uh, you know, basically, uh, expressing anguish at the fact that those he is to battle against are Swajanam, right? his own people. Krishna's answer in the Gita dismisses this anguish. From Krishna's uh, pronounce pronouncements, Gandhi develops a reading that a love for the neighbor flows from the very formlessness of the divine. This is doubtless a tendentious reading, uh, but we don't need to go into that here. Right? Gandhi's association of love and a non-sovereign divinity might also have been re reinforced by the Pranami Bhakti tradition in which he's brought up by his mother. You know, as Brendan LaRoque notes, right, the founder of the tradition, Muhammad Pranath, was notable for his eclectic engagement with religious traditions, his critique of caste, and his condemnation of ritualistic or orthodoxy. Right? In his own lifetime, Pranath faced considerable opposition for his insistence that both widows and lower castes be allowed to take initiation into the order 
you know, this is again Brendan writing. And his writings were and life were marked by a peculiar combination of Vaishnavite belief with Sufi mysticism and Shia millenarianism. You know, and as Brendan also notes, all of this has led uh, in our times to charges by Hindu nationalists that Pranath was a quote unquote a Muslim who tricked Hindus into becoming Muslims. Right. Uh, equally importantly, Gandhi, Gandhi would have found a figure to the quasi, would have found an analog to the quasi-universality of the neighbor in the figure of the guest, right? As for example, in the injunction Atichi Devo Bhava, right? Guest is God. As Simona Sani points out, the etymology of Atiti is itself suggestive, the one who comes in an untimely way. Uh, so the guest is not just the one to whom reciprocal and timely obligations are owed within an economic logic. The guest is precisely the aneconomic one who arrives outside the webs of reciprocity. Right? Now, I could multiply examples from Jainism and Buddhism, but for now, suffice to say that Gandhi can without difficulty presume that the injunction, love thy neighbor as, as thyself, is something that you can also draw on as a Hindu. Yeah. Uh, I should add here that beyond a point, the point being the degree to which the origin-seeking impulse of Eurocentrism must be contested. The question of whether Gandhi comes to the quasi-universal labor through the Bible or through Hindu texts is not particularly interesting. Right? Symptomatically, Gandhi himself is quite uninterested in it. Right? Indeed, on one occasion he writes, I've learned much from the West and I should not be surprised to find that I learned something about Ahimsa too from the West. I am not concerned what ideas of mine are the result of my foreign contacts. It is enough for me to know that my views on Ahimsa have become now a part and parcel of my own being. Right? Unquote. Okay, so, so much then for the first cluster of questions. Uh, let's move on now to the second cluster, yeah, uh, right? Which if you remember is about the new commandment that arises in the 19th century and how, how that transforms things, right? And he, here we could start by recalling what Ivan Karamazov tells his uh, brother Alyosha in Dostoevsky's classic, and I quote, uh, I must make an admission. I never could understand how it's possible to love one's neighbor. Right. In my opinion, it's precisely one's neighbor that one cannot possibly love. Perhaps if they weren't so nigh, if we are to come to love a man, the man himself should stay hidden. Because as soon as he shows his face, love vanishes. Unquote. Now, as you know, Karamazov is hardly alone in his, Ivan Karamazov is hardly alone in his uh, skepticism. In civilization and its discontents, Freud systematically eviscerates the biblical injunction and describes it as a manifestation of the cultural superego, right? Uh, and he says, and I'm quoting again from Freud, the commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, is the strongest defense against human aggression and an excellent example of the unpsychological manner in which the cultural superego proceeds. It is impossible to keep this commandment. Such a huge inflation of love can only lower its value, not remove the problem. Right? Now, Freud's and Karamazov's pronouncements occur against the backdrop of the rise of a new commandment, 
which, as I noted earlier, was by the 19th century displacing the biblical injunction. What was also displaced in the process was the very concept of the self that the biblical injunction depended on, a self organized around the primacy of the neighbor. The new self was organized around man as an empirical transcendental doublet, to recall Foucault's description. In a way, as with the biblical injunction, we are very familiar, even over-familiar, with descriptions of this new self. But once again, perhaps thematizing this self in terms of who and what, and the terrible reversibility of that pair, as uh, you know, may yield fresh insights. To proceed in that spirit, the empirical transcendental tablet was also marked by a new equality one that works for a distinctive uh, doublet, an incommensurability built on commensurability, a who that pivots on a what, right? Now, as you know, equality of what is the title of a famous essay by Amartya Sen, yeah? The unspoken assumption of that essay, an assumption so commonsensical to Sen as to be not worth thematizing, is that always is that equality is always in terms of some criteria, right? Hence the quote unquote what of that title, right? This what is a crux of the new concept of equality, for it makes ab equality abstract and commensurable. Such a commensurable and abstract equality of what is fundamentally different from the equality of say warriors who are equal to each other in their fearlessness to, towards death. This commensurable and abstract equality, the what, is arguably what forms the empirical part of Foucault's doublet. At the same time, this new equality also brings into being a distinctive who, the transcendental part of Foucault's doublet. Right? That part is instantiated most clearly perhaps in the Kantian categorical imperative or the injunction to treat humanity, whether in oneself or another, as never merely a means to an end, but also an end in itself. It is this injunction which anchors the emphasis in liberal traditions on dignity, on the incommensurable equality that attributed to all in all these traditions to all humans, and by extension to members of the nation state. Right? In other words, uh, what I'm trying to say is that the Kantian and uh, nationalist visions are premised on something paradoxical, right? A commensurable incommensurability, if one may put it this way. Yeah. And while this new equality is organized around the sacralization of immanent rather than transcendent entities, you know, the immanent entity being man above all, right? Uh, it is still theological in the sense that it treats these entities as sovereign. Yeah. The world of this empirical transcendental doublet is what Gandhi describes with the phrase Adhunik Sudharo or modern civility. And when he describes its violence, he observes, as you'll note, that its votaries uh, uh, quote unquote usurp the function of Godhead. Put differently, they make the human into a sovereign subject 
who is limitless or infinite in the sense of constantly seeking mastery. Okay, now the interesting thing is that with the rise of this new commandment, the older figure of the neighbor, whether theological or quasi-universal, is not just displaced, but also obscured, right? This obscuring is because the epistemological frame changes so drastically as to make the figure of the neighbor increasingly incomprehensible. Yeah? One might say that Ivan Karamazov and the Freud of civilization and its discontents speak from within this obscuring. Yeah? Here I would like to note just three aspects of this obscuring. And, you know, because in a sense, this obscuring is also a clarifying. That's what I want to come to eventually. Yeah? This obscuring is what makes possible the new concept of the neighbor that Gandhi and others arrive at. The new concept of the friend, too. First, because of the increasing separation of the transcendent and immanent, it is no longer possible to hold together love of God and love of neighbor. Yeah? To illustrate what I mean by this, Consider the example that Ivan sets before his brother Alyosha. You know, uh, a mother faced with the general who has ordered a child to be torn to pieces by his hounds, Ivan says, quote, and I quote, has no right to forgive the tormentor, even if the child himself were to forgive him. And as you know, this uh, this uh, this emphasis on on the the possibility, impossibility of forgiveness, and all of that is also there in uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Omelos, right? But yeah, we, we can get to that later. What Dostoevsky does not state, but what we might infer from his example is also this: that contrary to what Jacob Tobbs or Agamben might, in different ways, argue, even the Pauline injunction to love one's neighbor as oneself is surreptitiously underwritten by the existence of a God who can forgive what we cannot forgive, right? That is to say, the mother cannot forgive the tormentor, but God can forgive the tormentor, which is what makes love thy neighbor possible. Having lost his faith in uh, uh, a God at a time when the modern concept of the neighbor has not yet been articulated, Ivan Karamazov conceptually has no choice but to repudiate the figure of the neighbor itself. Right? This is one sense in which I'm saying that the neighbor becomes obscure, difficult to think. Second, the self that anchored the love of the neighbor itself wilts away by this time. You know, Kierkegaard says in works of love that in that injunction, love thy neighbor as thyself, much turns on the phrase as oneself, right? And he, and he asks, is it possible for anyone to misunderstand this? As if it were Christianity's intention to proclaim self-love as, as a prescriptive right. Indeed, on the contrary, it is Christianity's intention to wrest self-love away from us human beings. That Kierkegaard had to declare this is itself a symptom of how much the times have changed. Right? Before the consolidation of the new commandment, 
the interdiction on self-love and self-interest was so strong that elaborate justifications were needed to sidestep it, right? But by the time Kierkegaard wrote, this background common sense needed to be explicitly asserted against the naturalness of the self formed by the empirical transcendental doublet, right? So that's a second sense in which the neighbor is obscured, right? Third, the neighbor often appears in this new formulation to be sublated into the new injunction the, the categorical, of the categorical imperative. On the one hand, the categorical imperative folds into itself some of the an economy of the neighbor, thus the emphasis on treating humanity, whether in one's own person or in another, as never merely a means to an end, but an end in itself. On the other hand, you know, just as we talk, we're talking about the commensurable incommensurability, it seems to institute an economic and economy. Right? Sharing as he does with Kant the assumption that man is evil, Kant emphatically stresses that he does not seek the moral reformation of mankind. Hence, Kant's uh, famous uh, argument uh, in uh, Towards Perpetual Peace in the appendix there, that the problem is one of establishing a state that will work even for a race of devils, right? So that everybody following their self-interest will so check one another that in their public conduct, the result is the same as if they had no such evil dispositions. What Kant envisages here, need one say, is precisely the kind of order that Republican and liberal democracies seek to put in place. Now, the reason I stress this obscuring and displacement is that in its wake, even those who desire to practice neighborliness cannot do so in the old way, right? They must articulate a new neighborliness. Kierkegaard's works of love is an index of this. He picks on equality as a key feature of neighborliness. And I quote him, he says, the neighbor is one who is equal. To love the neighbor is equality. He is your neighbor by being your equal before God. But this equality is due unconditionally to every man and everyone has it unconditionally. Yeah. Now, Gandhi has certainly not, almost certainly not read Kierkegaard. Uh, as far as I know, Kierkegaard, this, this, this was not available in English translation at the time. But he makes a move that is not just similar, but even more radical. Yeah. For him, religion is marked by what he describes as early as 1899 by the quote-unquote doctrine of equality. Right? That phrase becomes, along with other analogs, uh, quite pervasive in his writings. In 1899, he ascribes this doctrine to Christianity. In 1909, he remarks that Islam offered equality to all that came within its pale in the manner that no other religion in the world did. When, therefore, about 1,000 years after Christ, his followers descended upon India, Hinduism stood dazed. It seemed to carry everything before it. The doctrine of equality could not but appeal to the masses who were caste-ridden, unquote. Yeah. Uh, soon after, right, uh, there is the, the he espies the doctrine of equality in Hindu texts too. At a conference uh, 
1920, against untouchability in 1924, for example, he declares his faith in the doctrine of equality as taught by Lord Krishna in the Gita. Then in 1937, he derives from the first verse of the Ishopanishad, the quote-unquote, the doctrine of equality of all creatures on earth, a doctrine which he had, quote-unquote, should satisfy the cravings of all philosophical communists. In between, in 1927, he declares in Sri Lanka that the Buddha preached the doctrine of equality amongst persons and, quote-unquote, that one's neighbor was as good as oneself. Right? Now, the question is, was equality the key motive of Christianity or religion more broadly before the 19th century? This seems actually very unlikely, as we, as we know, right? In fact, Kierkegaard and Gandhi and his 20th century interlocutors even more are revolutionizing the figure of the neighbor by infusing it with equality. They are initiating a new neighborliness. Right. Perhaps we can get to the older figure of the neighbor by reading more critically than Kierkegaard, a moment he draws attention to. The tension between the way God and neighbor are to be loved. When Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment in the law? He replies, thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. And with all thy mind, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the love and the prophets. As this doubled commandment suggests, God and neighbor are not to be loved in the same way. Right? The devout are to love God with all their soul, mind and strength. So much so that God must be loved more than one's dearest ones, more than oneself. In other words, God is to be loved not as an equal, but as an absolute sovereign, sovereign over the devotee's whole being, calling forth adoration and obedience in Kierkegaard's words. In turn, God loves his devotees as a sovereign, not as an equal. Moreover, since God is often infinite and all-pervasive, a self-subordinating love for a sovereign God must be inscribed in oneself. So one can love God in obedience and adoration only by having a sovereign relation with oneself or a relation in which one is not equal to that part of oneself which partakes of the divine. That's what I mean by a sovereign relationship with oneself. Yeah. Uh, in the Christian traditions, the acceptance of inequality with the self and neighbor is well thematized in the Augustinian neighbor as uh, Erin's classic study helps us recognize. Right? Augustine's intervention consolidates the conceptual grounding for a Bible that divides sovereign power into two. Divine sovereignty over the eternal part of oneself and earthly sovereignty over the mortal part of oneself. Love thy neighbor as thy, thyself now becomes about loving the eternal part of the neighbor, even as one may remain in an inimical relation with the mortal part of the neighbor. Right? Thus does the quasi-universality and an economy of the neighbor come to be reined in and contained. Because it chafes against this containment, Kierkegaard's declaration that the neighbor is the one who is equal remains radical even for the Christian traditions of his times. To illustrate what I mean, in a famous narrative in 1861, a decade and a half after Kierkegaard uh, wrote, Harriet Jacobs, who had escaped from slavery in North Carolina, you know, and I quote, uh, retells a story from her early childhood about her mistress, one described by Jacobs' editor 
a white abolitionist as kind, considerate. And now moving on to Jake, Harry Jacobs herself. After a brief period of suspense, the will of my mistress was read. And we learned that she had bequeathed me to her sister's daughter, a child of five years old. So vanished our hopes. My mistress had taught me the precepts of God's word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Whatever you would that men do, shall do unto you, do you so even unto them. But I was her slave, and I suppose she did not recognize me as her neighbor. Harriet Jacobs, like the unquote, sorry, Harriet Jacobs, like the disprivileged in many places and times, is drawn to the quasi-universalism that the injunction seems to promise. But Jacobs and Slaver worked with the transcendentalized figure of the neighbor, the Augustinian neighbor, so to speak. So, contrary to what Jacobs assumed, her enslaver likely did recognize as a neighbor and even an equal, but only a spiritual equal. Just as mastery of the self is itself part of obedience and adoration of the divine, so too mastery of the neighbor, subordinating and even humiliating them in the imminent world, can be quite compatible with love of them as spiritual equals. Right? And a similar... Uh, Obscuring of equality occurs in the Hindu traditions that Gandhi invokes. Right? In the Gita, for example, if all are equal to the devotee, this is because the devotee is ready for absorption into Brahman, which is infinite just as the God of Christian traditions is. In other words, the equality of all life is mediated by the divine. And even the Bhakti traditions, famous for what is taken to be their emphasis on equality, are marked at best by an ambiguous relation between spiritual equality and what I'm calling immanent equality, right? As John Kuhn's uh, path-breaking uh, study of the Varkari Bhakti traditions brings out. Similarly, Simona Sani's essay, which I cited earlier, is centered around Abdul Bismillah's story, Guest is God, right? Which is about how the Muslim guest is anything but God to the dominant caste Muslim, right? Uh, dominant caste Hindu, sorry. Yeah. Uh, in sum, the, the good slave owner, the kind Brahmin, uh, these figures whose violence is so evident to us are examples of the New Testament injunction, love thy neighbor as thyself, rather than you know, violations of it. And there are examples also of comparable bhakti exhortations. Especially in its dominant historical manifestations, the injunction to love both the neighbor and enemy is not an inequality that does away with not an equality that does away with, with domination. Rather, paradoxical though this observation will sound, it is about quote unquote generously inhabiting profoundly unequal relationships of who, such as those involved in enslavement or caste. This is not at all to say that Kierkegaard and Gandhi were wrong in ascribing equality to the Bible and the Gita. In Capital, Marx famously notes that Aristotle falters in his analysis of the forms of value. And he falters, Marx says, because the circumstances were not ripe. And I'm quoting Marx now. The secret of the expression of value, namely the equality and equivalence of all kinds of labor, because and insofar as they are human labor in general, could not be deciphered until the concept of human equality had acquired the permanence of a fixed popular opinion. This, however, becomes possible only in a society where the commodity form is a universal product of, using universal form of the product of labor, 
Hence, the dominant social relation is a relation between men as possessors of commodities, unquote. Something not just analogous, but related, needs to be said of equality in the case of the pre-modern neighbor. Where the neighbor is taken up into theological universalism, like Augustine's, there the thought of any equality with the neighbor becomes difficult, maybe impossible. And while the quasi-universal tradition of the neighbor is inevitably drawn to equality, this is an equality that does not yet know its name, that does not yet know its concept, right? just as Marx says of Aristotle. It finds itself unable to accept either domination or subordination. But like the Varkari Bhakti traditions in Western India, it does not and perhaps cannot have the, the vocabulary to articulate this inability affirmatively. In other words, because the equality of the neighbor was organized around non-sovereign love, it remained so untimely as to be unthinkable till the consolidation of the modern concept of equality, right? The consolidation, in other words, of the equality of the major or of what Gandhi calls the equality of the sword. Only after this modern concept of equality acquired what Marx calls the, the permanence of a fixed popular opinion, could its undertow, the equality of the minor, be thought, right? Uh, you will see now why I call this path along, why, why I call this talk along the path to Gandhi's neighbor. This is not about Gandhi's neighbor. It's about the preconditions for thinking Gandhi's neighbor. Yeah. And so to draw today's talk to a close then, Kierkegaard comes to the brink of this equality of the minor, but he cannot articulate it. It could only be articulated in the 20th century by those such as Gandhi or Ambedkar or MLK or Simone Weil those who affirm the spirit of liberty, equality, and fraternity, but sought to wrest it away from the empirical transcendental doublet, from the equality of the major. In the process, they had to conceive a purely immanent love of the neighbor, or more precisely, undo the immanent transcendent distinction. They had to conceive a love that responded to the question of forgiveness that Dostoevsky so succinctly formulated. Right. How to think this other equality, this equality of the minor, this democracy without sovereignty. This is the challenge that Gandhi and his fellow thinkers and actors begin to take up in the wake of the ruination of both pre-modern traditions of the neighbor and modern sovereignty-centered visions of equality. Following along their path, their paths really, we too are brought up to this beginning. Where to go and how to go from this beginning? Uh, this is a question that I think we're only really beginning to take up. Right? Thank you.